and you're listening to a sermon from Bent Tree Church in Loveland, Colorado. For more information about Bent Tree, visit BentTreeChurch.com. Well, good morning, Bent Tree. Shameless product placement. There we go. It's good to see you guys here. Let's go ahead and get our Bibles out. As, as our brother Ed said, this is Sanctity of Life Sunday, where we both um, honor uh, the life that God gives us through children, but also we mourn uh, because of what our church and nation uh, have seen uh, in the last years. Um, so, well, how are we doing? It's good to look out, see your smiling faces. Uh, it's Baptism Sunday as well, another part of Sanctity of Life. We're going to be seeing new life. Uh, so uh, as you turn to John 8, we'll get there in just a, a couple of minutes. I wanted to let you in on a couple of things before we get started. First, uh, other than Baptism Sunday, we always love seeing those baptized and those visiting. Thank you for coming and supporting them. And second, in February, we're going to be starting a new preaching series. I know that sounds funny. Uh, I've been looking forward to this for a couple of years. Don't worry, it's a short series. Uh, it's February and March of this year. Uh, other churches go, those aren't short series. That's eight weeks, Paul. I said, it's actually nine weeks, but the first celebration is going to be at the end of that time, near the end, and that's our uh, 14th birthday. Can you believe that? It's going to be incredible. And then the second celebration that wraps up that series is Easter Sunday. And that's going to be a wonderful time. But I'm really excited about this new series. Is It's called Growing Together dot dot dot. And then the tagline is what is the church? What is the church? Now, the series will dive into our biblical answers to that question. What is the church? Now, the reason I'm so excited about this series is what it will do for the people of God in the church. Uh, we're going to see what the Bible actually says our role is as members in that church. Now, what's so cool about this series is that we're going to tie this in to some of our most foundational uh, beliefs that make a church a church. And we'll pull that right from Scripture. And in that series, we've got some cool things coming that I want to share with you, but we'll have to let those surprise you as they uh, we make those announcements. Uh, now, some of you guys are thinking, but Paul, we haven't finished John 8 yet? And the answer is, no, we haven't. Uh, but don't worry. Uh, we'll be back to John 8 after uh, April. Uh, God willing, we'll get back to there, wrap John 8 up. So many cool things happening at Bentry. This is a great church. Uh, if I didn't work here, I'd go to church here. This is, a, this is a great church. Well, let's dive in, shall we? To remind us where we are in John chapter 7 and 8 have taken place in the temple. And what we're looking at there is... This is the closing days of the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, it's been this conflict between Jesus and these Jewish religious leaders with this great crowd. We're talking thousands of common Jewish folk listening in. Now, the Jewish leaders are trying to stop Jesus. They want him dead, uh, but they haven't been able to arrest him just yet because they are afraid of this giant group of 
Jewish folks listening in. So these leaders are trying to trap Jesus in his words and maybe turn the tables on Jesus. What we mean is that if they, the religious leaders, can get the crowd on their side and see that Jesus is just blasphemous in their opinion and maybe crazy or some kind of revolutionary, well, then maybe they'll pick up stones and in mob violence kill Jesus. The crowd rise up and stone Jesus. But the problem is not only that the religious leaders can't seem to win any of their points, any of their arguments against Jesus. But on top of that, Jesus uses this to actually show the people who he is. At the same time, Jesus claims over and over to be this Messiah, the Son of God sent to save the world. So now this argument is heated for sure, at least on the part of the religious leaders, not so much on Jesus, but Jesus, man, Whatever Jesus says frustrates these religious leaders. These guys are just seething with hate towards Jesus. And Jesus makes this statement then. Look at verse 47 in your own Bible or up here. Jesus says, whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. Now, you can write a big capital D-O-G in your Bible right next to that for doctrines of what? Grace. It's this kind of verse that we see all over Scripture, uh, Old Testament and New. Um, This is the kind of Scripture that launched the Reformation 500 plus years ago with a basic understanding of going back, reforming to what the Bible says, not what we think it should say. So we're reforming back to the gospel, what the Bible says. Now, when we say reformed, what we mean is that we're going to the biblical definitions of who God is and then who we are. Got it? And that is God is sovereign, we're not. Pretty easy, isn't it? That's every part of our lives that God is in control. Jesus is saying to these religious leader guys, he says, you are spiritually dead. But they can't hear what he's saying spiritually because he is speaking as the son of God spiritually. All of us at one point were spiritually dead, weren't we? Before we are called to life by the Holy Spirit of God at the direction of God the Father, we're spiritually dead. That's the reason back in John 3, we hear Jesus tell Nicodemus, He says, to see God, to have a relationship with God, we must be what? Born again. Or the word regenerated, brought to life, born from heaven. So when Jesus tells these guys the truth of who he is, they can't hear him. They can't understand his message because they are spiritually dead. They can hear him physically, don't get me wrong. They aren't physically dead, they're spiritually dead. But just like the body that is physically dead, a spiritually dead person can't hear spiritual things. The spiritually dead person can't hear what the Spirit of God is saying. Therefore, they can't hear, they can't understand Jesus. Are you with me? Now, we see the total depravity of mankind's heart with these unregenerate Jewish leaders. They are completely cut off from God. Even though they see and hear Jesus physically, they can't hear him spiritually because they're dead. So we see it right here in Jesus' words, don't we? 
So Jesus says to these leaders, whoever is of God hears the words of God. Now hang on right there. What does Jesus mean? Well, who is of God? It's those that God has called to life, again, being born again by the power of the Holy Spirit of God to hear the word of God with understanding. Now think back to John 1 for just a second. What does the apostle John refer to Jesus as? Do you remember that? He calls Jesus the word. He calls him the word of God or the, in the Greek it's called logos of God. So Jesus is the word or you could say he is the spiritual message of God the Father. That's who Jesus is. So listen to what Jesus is saying. He says whoever is of God hears the words of God. He's talking spiritually. But then look at what he says in the second half of the verse. He tells them, he says, guys, guys, the reason you do not hear is that you are not of God. He's saying the reason they do not hear him is because they're not of God. Now here again, we see doctrines of grace right here. Big D-O-G, And specifically, we see definite atonement or what the theologians back in the day referred to as limited atonement. Now, limited atonement is fine to say, but sometimes people misunderstand what that means. So I like the term, we use the term definite atonement. Now, we could preach an entire series right here, and you know I'm telling the truth. Okay, That Jesus will have a ton more to say about this, what definite atonement is through the rest of John as we move through there. But here's a basic definition of definite atonement. Is redemption of every person given to the Son by the Father in eternity past. Definite atonement, redemption of every person given to the Son by the Father in eternity past. Now Christ's death, listen, was not just to try to attain salvation solely for God's people. Rather, Jesus' death, look at me, accomplished salvation. Do you see the difference? Jesus will fulfill the meaning of his name by saying to the saving their people from their sins. But for those like these religious leaders who Jesus says are not one of mine, Jesus is clear. He does not intend to save them, does he? The term definite, indefinite atonement is used here in two ways. First, Christ's death was definite in its purpose. He gave his life to save people, a group of people specifically. And second, second, it was definite in its effect. His sacrifice truly compensates for sin. It is an indefinite, it is definite in its atonement. Do you remember back in John 6? We spent like Four months there. When Jesus tells his disciples that no one can come to Jesus unless the Father draws, uh, who sent me draws them. Do you remember that? Do you remember that? Turn back with me just for a moment. 
John 6, Jesus says this. He says, no one, let's just check how many, no one, no one could come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus doesn't beat around the bush. He says, no one could come to him unless God the father draws them. And skip down to verse 30, or skip back up to verse 37, John 6. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. So all those given to Jesus will come to him. And those who come to him, will ne- he will never cast out. All that the Father gives Jesus will be saved. Amen? And they can't lose their salvation. That's Jesus that's saying that. Because it was Jesus that gave them life. So back in John 8, flip back there. As Jesus is speaking here in verse 44, Jesus has just said to these religious leaders, he says, you are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. Or in other words, you have not been given to me by the father So not only are they not of God, they are actually of the devil. Now, if you want to tick somebody off, just tell them they're the spawn of Satan. I mean, that's like, he just goes for the jugular vein right there. Jesus says to them, you're not one of mine. You're not one of my followers. What's interesting here is that there are possibly thousands of Jewish people listening in, right? They're hearing this. They don't believe yet that Jesus is the son of God. But look, he doesn't call them the sons of the devil, does he? Even though they don't believe yet. Why is that? Well, because they, some of them at least will believe at some point in the near future when the spirit of God calls them to life. They are not sons of God yet, but they will be called to life by God. They will be given faith. Now, many in this crowd will be saved at Pentecost. Thousands of them. That's Acts chapter two. They would come to Christ. Spiritually, they'd be born again. So get this. There are some listeners here that don't believe, but they will be called to life and would be called. And then there are some that wouldn't believe. Some are children of God. They can believe. And some of these Jewish leaders, for instance, they are children of the devil. They can't believe. That's exactly what Jesus is saying. That's what he says, right? Are you catching that? So now this this is solid old school doctrine here. This is offensive to us. Because we always want to make salvation about what we want And how we're going to save ourselves. In our belief, we'll save ourselves. So this makes these guys even more angry. Because they live this life of piety. Trying to earn salvation. So they respond. They're not going to let this lie uh, there. So look in verse 48. The Jews answered him. Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Now in our day and age, this insult doesn't carry much meaning here. Uh, We need to understand it from their perspective. Samaritans and Jews, they hated each other. They considered each other the scum of the earth. Uh, It would be like a Jew right now living in Israel going, "Um, you're a Hamas terrorist. Do you, you get the hatred level there? 
And they're saying, and you come straight from hell. In the 1970s and 80s, what did we say this was? We go, this is a cut down, right? It's like, this is saying, yeah, yeah, your mama. By the way, that's an indication that you have lost the argument. They, they've lost the argument when you say just resorting to insults like this. But then we hear Jesus' response, and this is masterful. Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. Notice Jesus begins his response simply by answering the question, the charge that he's demon-possessed. He simply says, I do not have a demon. But, he says, I honor my father and you dishonor me. Now, why is this so important? Well, in other words, Jesus is saying, not only am I not demon-possessed, I'm going to prove that. He's saying that all I've ever said and done in these days as I've been talking to you is to talk about honoring my father and bringing glory to my father and carrying out his will. It's like Jesus is saying, Demons don't do that. Demons are not trying to glorify God. They're, they're trying to steal, steal. My Texas accent won't let me say that correctly. Steal, <laughs> kill, and destroy. That's what they want, right? In other words, demons don't propose to say, hey, how could we honor God in our evil? They just don't say that. The Jewish leader's charge doesn't make sense that Jesus is either a demon or possessed or Samaritan. It's like when they accuse him of casting out demons by the power of Satan. Do you remember that? All right, they're desperate to find some kind of charge regardless of how idiotic it is, absurd it is. They can't make anything stick Because it doesn't make sense. Okay, what's really ironic here is that these Jewish leaders have been trying to prove that Jesus' words are blasphemous, right? What's ironic is in accusing the Son of God being demon-possessed actually is blasphemous. (laughs) To be blasphemous means to say or do things that are against God. It's heretical talk, in other words, profane talk. Write this down. Jesus demonstrates that the religious leaders are blasphemous in their accusations against him. That's what Jesus does in the end of that verse. Jesus demonstrates that the religious leaders are blasphemous or against God in their accusations against him. They're calling the Son of God Satan. And what's kind of funny here is in doing that, they're actually outing themselves of being offspring of Satan. Now, I mean, we shouldn't be surprised here, should we? We shouldn't be surprised. That's how evil works, doesn't it? Evil lies to people. I know we're always so surprised, like, hey, they lied to us. Uh, It's evil. It's like Pirates of the Caribbean. He goes, pirate, you remember that? It's like... Like father, like son. That's really the only power Satan has is to lie. They call good evil. And they call evil good, don't they? They misrepresent the truth, and I mean that ultimately. Meaning the truth of God, the complete truth is represented in Jesus' 
literally standing there speaking the truth spiritually, they accuse Jesus of being a demon. Jesus goes on then to show how utterly ridiculous these Jewish leaders' charges are. It's embarrassing to them. Jesus says at the end of verse 49, he says, I honor my father and you dishonor me. Then in verse 50, Jesus is talking, he says, yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one, notice the capital O, one who seeks it and he is the judge. Jesus is saying, I don't seek my own glory. Don't miss the inference that Jesus makes here because this is huge. A demon or even just say the average person would always seek to bring glory to themselves. Everyone self-promotes, don't they? We don't want to be humiliated. We don't. It's a result of our pride. And the pride is the sin that brought Satan himself down with the other fallen angels that we simply refer to as demons, right? Fallen angels or demons. You see, pride is the reason it is so deadly. It, it, makes, us, it makes us the center of the universe. We want the attention. We want happiness. We want joy. We want the glory instead of God. Now, the praise of mankind makes us want what we want and not what God wants. We looked at the fall of Satan last week. That is what he wanted, right? He wanted to be God. But in John 8, Jesus says, I don't seek my own glory. And you've never seen me or heard me seek my own glory. Then he says, however, there is someone who does seek my glory. Who is it? It's God the Father, right? Jesus calls the one seeking the glory the judge. The judge, the ultimate judge the judge of all things. Jesus is continuing to talk about God the Father. Jesus is always focused on glorifying God the Father, even at the point of being personally attacked. He's never changed the subject. He always points back to the glory of God. God the Father is going to bring then glory to Jesus. What is that referring to? When he says he's going to glorify me, Jesus' death on the cross. It's referring to his burial In the tomb, the resurrection from the dead, it's referring to his ascension back to heaven to be seated at the right hand of God. Talk about ultimate glory. When God the Father says, come up to heaven, sit right next to me, your work is done. The Apostle Paul describes it this way. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22 through 23. I put the orange in here so you know who the he it's referring to. And he, God the Father, put all things under his, Jesus' feet. You got that? And gave him, Jesus, as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now, I don't want to get off track. We could spend hours on this verse alone exploring what this means that God the Father gave Jesus head over all things to the church. That's some good stuff right there. That's some good, good stuff. But if we think about what Jesus is saying here in John 7 and John 8, what we're studying, the whole time this conversation has gone on, Jesus has been talking about his purpose is to do the will of God the Father to bring him glory. 
You've got to see that. That's the whole point of Jesus' life. It's the whole point of his mission. And in turn, God the Father will glorify the Son. Do you get that? All right, that's the meta theme of the entire Bible. To bring God the Father glory. And then the Father brings Jesus glory. But then Jesus doesn't leave it there with these guys. He's going to drop a truth bomb on these guys. They're not going to understand it. It's going to go over their head. But I pray it won't go over our heads. I really want us to understand this. So I'm going to drill down on this verse, verse 51. So you need to pay careful attention on this. All that stuff was setting up verse 51. So look at this. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Now, you might be asking, what's the big deal, Paul? What's the big deal about this verse? Let's take this verse apart to find out. First, Jesus starts off like he does when he's about to make some giant truth claim. He says, truly, truly. The word for the, uh, the Greek word for this is amin, amin, is how it's, uh, it looks in Greek right here, amin, truly, you know it as amen, means true, trustworthy, surely, or let it be. Truly, amen, means true, trustworthy, surely, or let it be. Like when I ask. Can I get an amen on that? What am I really, really asking you? I'm asking, is what I'm saying up here or reading to you actually true, true? Truth. When you respond, amen, what you're saying is yes. When you're saying amen, it's like saying, I agree with that. It's like saying, let it be. So when Jesus begins a verse this way, it's a little different. He's laying out some absolute truth for us. He's saying this is something that you can base your faith in. It's absolute truth. So what is it? What can we base our faith in that's true, true? It's based on two things. First, there's a condition to be met and a promise to be received. Now, what's the condition that Jesus says has to be met. Here it is. The condition Jesus gives, he says, if anyone keeps my word. The condition Jesus gives is if anyone keeps my word. Watch very carefully here. Watch very carefully. When Jesus begins the condition with the word if, I-F, and then follows with anyone, that means there is something we or anyone must do after which the promise will be received. Are you tracking? But what does it mean to keep his word? What's the condition? Like, how do we keep Jesus' word? Look at, let's take a look. It is here. To keep his word, we must hear it. I know this is basic, but go with me on this. To keep his word, we must first hear it, right? Now think about how can we keep his word unless you or I 
hear it. Like the gospel message comes to you. You actually hear it, or we could say you read it. Same idea. We hear it in our heart. But then, to keep his word, we must understand it. So we hear it, we understand it. Turn back with me to John chapter 5 for just a moment. There's a verse that's very similar to 851. It's John 5:24. Here it is. Truly, truly, I mean, I mean, I say to you, by the way, this is Jesus speaking again. He says, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Sound familiar here? We studied this a ton back in John chapter 5, but that's still not enough to say we are keeping his word just to, just to hear it, just to understand it. What is it that we also have to do? Here it is. We must believe it. We must believe it. Now go with me. I know I'm being basic here. Now we can't do that until we have been called to life by God the Father, by the power of the Holy Spirit, until we have been born again. That's what that first talk, part of the talk was all about, right? It's this, this dual thing. We can't save ourselves, and yet we're responsible to believe. Both those things are true. But it is a sign you have been born again. You believed it. You believe in not just that you hear it, not just that you understand it. Uh, what he said is to believe then by committing our lives, basing our lives on that belief. You regularly hear me say, if you believe, then change teams. That's repenting. Start following Jesus. Repent of your old way of life, your old way of thinking of not following Jesus. If you believe, commit yourself to it. And that's how you'll know you're keeping the word of Jesus. Here it is. Obey it. To keep his word, we must hear it, understand it, believe it, obey it. To keep his word, we must hear it, understand it, believe it, obey it. Some of you are going, Paul, this seems like it clashes with the first part that only those that have been born again can hear this. But listen, at the core, isn't that what it means to keep his word, to obey it. Christians will many times think, am I really saved? I mean, I, I did some awful stuff. Am I really forgiven? Am I really a child of God? Every Christian has thought that, even me. Those doubts come into my mind, just like they do yours. In those times, it's good to examine your heart. Is there some sin that has crept in and you need to repent of, but then rest in that what the apostle John says in 1 John chapter 2, verse 3 through 6. And by this, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Sound familiar? Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commands is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. 
By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. He being Jesus. So we obey his word. That is how we keep his word. All right. And what is his word? What are we supposed to keep? It's right here. It's this. How do we keep it? How do we keep it if we don't know it? It's why we study it so much here. It's why I don't give you practical sermons like how to organize your closet. It's why I don't go, hey, if you want that promotion, here's how you should live. No, no, no. We study the Bible because it's the only thing that can change our hearts. So if that, that's the condition, what we've talked about, if anyone keeps my word, Jesus says, what's the promise? Look at verse 51 again. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, what? He will never see death. I would contend that the fear of death, specifically the knowledge of our finite lifespan, the fear of death is something deep in our hearts and sometimes not so deep. Death is the enemy of us all. It comes to us all. Sorry if that's a surprise to you. And yet for most of us, especially when we're younger, death's not something that happens to us. That is, until it strikes someone close to you, a few weeks ago, a good friend, a pastor, just a little older than me, older than me, died of cancer. And I was going, God, why take him? Yesterday morning, a good friend, another pastor, just in the next town over from where I grew up, died of cancer. I'm going, God, what's happening? Look, the reason death hurts so much for those left behind is when someone dies, it's not supposed to happen. Death Separation is a result of our sin. Death is exactly what God promised Adam and Eve in the garden if they broke God's command. Do you remember? And when they did break that command, death entered creation. And you and I were born into that dump. God says in Genesis 3.19, he says, By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Listen, instinctively we understand that death is the enemy and we fight against it. Because we know death is coming, and yet, and yet we play like, yeah, but it won't happen to me. It won't happen to me. See, I'm alive. I won't die. And here, John 8, Jesus is making the promise that if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Write this down. I'm hoping this will help. The promise Jesus makes to those that keep his word is that they will never experience eternal separation from God. The promise Jesus makes to those that keep his word is that they will never experience separation from God. Let's make sure we understand the promise. Jesus is, Jesus doesn't mean physical death primarily. How do we know that? Well, Jesus died. And yes, he was raised back to life, but he died a physical death. All the apostles died. Even Lazarus, whom Jesus had raised back to life, you remember that? Even him, he died again. 
You imagine he's like when he's dying, he goes, oh man, here I go again. All of us die, except for a very few that will still be around when Jesus returns to this world, which I hope is soon. Amen. So what is the promise? What is the promise? To help us turn back once again to John 5, verse 24 again. Look at this. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Now that last line is our clue. The person that has heard the word of Jesus believes and does not come in. He does not come into judgment, but has what? He's passed from death to life. Now this is key. Hang with me. Notice the, pre, the past tense of the word past. <laughs> Do you catch that? The past tense of the word past. Jesus said the person who keeps his word that believes has moved from death to life. He's not talking about physical life, your physical body. Jesus is referring to spiritual life. Remember the word death, the death means literal separation. That's what the word death means. It's a physical separation, physical death. Uh, The spirit is separated from the body. The spirit leaves the body behind. That's what you've seen over and over at, at funerals, right? Now, that is a result of our sin. Our body dies. That's part of the deal of sin. And that's scary enough. But Jesus is clearly not talking about physical death here. So what is the kind of death that Jesus is referring to? Here it is. Spiritual death. The soul and the spirit are separated from God. The soul and the spirit are separated from God. We often hear this spiritual, called spiritual death, referred to by theologians as the second death. Are you with me? This should send cold water down your spine. Where the world seems to be worried about the first death, physical death. Listen, that's nothing compared to the second death. The second death is scary because it is where we face judgment for what we are guilty of. That is what John 8.51 is so massive in its meaning. It's this. Jesus promises to allow all who believe on him as Savior and Lord to remove the second death. That's the point of John 8, 51. Jesus promises to all who believe on him as Savior and Lord to remove the second death. And the great news is not only that. Look once more at that last line of John 5, 24. He does not come into judgment but has passed, past tense, passed from death to life. He's already been made alive. Do you see that? He's already been made alive. Jesus is clearly saying here that the believer bypasses the judgment that he is due and moves, he is passed from death to life. In other words, he's made alive. This is what it says in both the Old and the New Testament. Ezekiel 18 verse 4, the second half, God tells us that the soul who sins shall die. 
In Romans 6.23 it says, For the wages of sin is death. Talking spiritual death. This kind of death is the separation of the soul from God. It is the direct consequence for our sin. But Jesus takes that punishment on his, on his back to the cross. He takes our punishment. He takes our consequences. And we take, look, we take his reward. Do you see the difference? This is, this is a crazy great thing about the redeemed. We didn't do anything to earn it. When Jesus Christ sacrificed himself on the cross, he took on the separation and death that you and I deserved. By doing so, he permanently removed the power of death for those who have faith in him as Savior and Lord. As a result, those who trust in Christ no longer live in fear of death. Instead, they can confidently declare, like the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 55, O death! Where is your victory? He's taunting death. Oh, death, where is your sting? You want Pastor Paul's translation? Death, you ain't got nothing on me now. I like my translation. Because listen, death is the enemy. If we embrace all that in faith and truly understand it, it turns our attention away from seeking our own glory Because we have nothing to stand on. It puts the focus on God. He has brought us salvation. Now why? If the grave, if the second death, if eternal judgment has been taken away, that means that I have a relationship with God that won't end. It means that physical death is not a doorway into eternal suffering and torment, but rather death becomes my step into final true joy And dare I say true happiness? I mean, that word just kind of crumbles under the weight of that meaning. Don't get me wrong. I don't like the thought of pain when I die. I don't like pain. Um, But I'm looking forward to my death because of the other side. But hey, I'm also keeping my eyes open for the return of Jesus. Amen? All right. In John 8, Jesus dropped some Deep, eternal truth on these guys blows their mind. Let's go back to the discussion we had earlier with the word amen, or in the Greek, amen. There's something even deeper I want us to see with this word. And we can begin to see it in the word's origin. The word amen is found in almost every language on earth. It's strange. It's its origin, the Hebrew word root, it means to support with the arm or to carry, the root of the word. Its, its original meaning was something unshakable, pounded into, uh, like a, 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 you're looking for stud in the wall to hang a picture. It's pounding in. It's finding something that you can put your weight on. That's the meaning of the word. So over time, the word amen acquired two significant meanings in the biblical language. First, it became associated with God as one of God's attributes. That's not surprising, considering that the word signifies something unshakable, unchangeable. In Isaiah, God is referred to as the great amen or the God of truth. God is quoted in Isaiah saying that those who invoke a blessing or swear to an oath uh, in the land will do so by the God of truth, the God of amen. 
God of truth, same idea. And the New Testament, amen, means everything we just said in the Old Testament. But it, it adds something more. When Jesus, when it talks about Jesus, in the Gospel of John, the word appears 127 times. In John 8.51 that we drilled down on, sometimes it's repeated by Jesus himself. In uh, 76 of those times, amen is placed at the beginning of the sentence. Amen, amen. Indicating it's God speaking. Do you get that? In 48 other verses, amen appears at the end of the sentence, indicating a person is speaking in relationship to what has been said. Now, the reason why this is important is because it signifies when God speaks. God affirms the truthfulness of his words by prefacing them like we read today. Amen, amen. Truly, truly. But when Jesus speaks, his people echo the affirmation, amen. Do you get it? When believers say amen, we are acknowledging our belief in God's faithfulness. It is a testimony. When Jesus says to those who sin that they are slaves to sin, but for those who believe they have passed from death to life out of sin slavery to eternal life with Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, when we hear that, our heart responds with a resounding amen. What's also amazing about the word amen is what we find in the book of Revelation. Flip there. It's the last book in the Bible. Flip to Revelation 3.14. Listen how it responds or refers to Jesus here. It's right at the end. He's talking to the church at Laodicea, but listen to how Jesus is referred to. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write the words of the amen. That's Jesus' name. The words of the amen, the faithful and the true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Amen. Truth. It's literally another title for our Savior. Amen. Well, we talked early today about Jesus showing those Jewish leaders that he is not a demon by showing his whole life's purpose was to bring glory to God and how he lived and how he carried out his mission. Let that, our, let that be our focus. That as we no longer look to ourselves to say, how can I achieve happiness in life? But how can I bring glory to God? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your words your words of life that you have given to us. The logos, the great amen, the amen of Jesus. So our hearts respond, amen. We say, God, you are great. Thank you for calling us to life in you. Christians, as you pray, if you would just Pray for me, pray for those who don't know Jesus. And if you're not a Christian or you're not sure, would you just look at me here? Here's what I want you to know. There's nothing special I did to save myself. I was brought to life by God. 
And listen, the reason why I'll never understand. No Christian could truly say. It's simply God chooses us. Here's what I want you to know. If what I'm saying is ringing true in your heart, not your beating muscle, but the core of you, that's you being called to life by God. I know that's crazy sounding, but you have been given life. If that's the case, believe. You hear me use that word, repent. Repent is just stop doing what you used to do, which is your unbelief. Start believing that Jesus is the Son of God. And if that's the case, start living the way he's called us to live. It really is that simple. If you believe, you have been called to life. And you have to believe to be called to life. And you go, Paul, those don't go together. I'm saying that's what the Bible says. So, if you believe, but you're unsure of your faith, simply pray, God, give me the faith to believe. Give me the faith to follow you, Jesus. And like the the guy said when he, he was talking to Jesus, he says, Jesus, help my unbelief. Pray that. And then simply say, thank you for saving me. Show me how to live for you. Show me how to follow you. It's in Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon from Bentry Church. To get connected at Bentry and for more information, please visit BentryChurch.com.